O God, whose Son Jesus is the good shepherd of your people, grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads, who with you in the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God forever and ever. Amen. That's the collect for today, May the 8th, 2022, the fourth Sunday after Easter. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are, um, we had a, a kind of a busy week. It's been obviously a very odd couple of weeks, very emotional couple of weeks. Um, trying to come to grips with losing your son is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, I'll just be honest about that. We've, um, we've talked a lot. We've laughed a lot. We've cried a lot. We've had people over uh, spending time, and, and that's been good. We had 10 of his coworkers with us uh, one night this week, and that was a, a wonderful thing to do. And then we're uh, having people uh, for dinner Friday night, and so it, this is Friday, by the way, when I'm taping this. And so I'm looking forward to being with friends at somebody else's house on tonight, not at our house. Um, but it's been a blessed time, and, and somebody posted on the um, – page we set up on Facebook a year ago when when he had the fall um, somebody posted a, a wonderful tribute to him that blessed us remarkably it's been um, it's been a, a tough couple of weeks actually for a reason that I, that I don't really want to get into very much but um, there's somebody who has actually caused us pain during this period of time and, and I've learned a lot about what a narcissist is and it's not somebody you want to get involved in if you if you with if you see it if you see any of this stuff manifest about narcissism then then flee that person it won't end well uh, for you otherwise it, it's been this person has made this time incredibly more difficult and has, has uh, because of things that that have been said and it, it's just it's bizarre that's the only way I know to say it it's been the strangest thing I've ever experienced in my life I could never have imagined some of this. Um, at all it's just very very strange so we've been sort of struggling through that trying to figure out you know kind of how to deal with that person and uh, I think we've we've gone no contact is the only thing I I knew to do Um, but it's just it's been odd there's no way around it so it's been it's made it far more difficult than it would have been but um, was able to get together with other friends this week helped somebody helped a friend move and and that was a wonderful thing he had coached Will in baseball for several years and his son and Will were teammates from the time we moved to Asheville uh, when he Will was 11 all the way through um, high school and they were good good buddies and had a lot in common so that you know that was a blessed time of, of staying busy and all that kind of stuff so anyway it's been it, it, we're, we're moving along we're, <laughs> we're we're trying to figure things out on the fly I actually had a dream about Will last night I won't go into it but uh, we had a nice conversation anyway so so I've been thinking about it a lot this week uh, in connection even with these lessons because um You'll see that I'll remind you that that during the season of Easter, so from Easter to Pentecost, the way the lectionary lays out is you don't have an Old Testament lesson. You read a lesson from Acts about how the church went forward after Easter, and so you see the the movement of the church. Uh, and and today, what we're going to get is Peter raising a woman from the dead, in the same way Jesus raised the uh, the daughter of the synagogue um, ruler. And we're going to see it's a very it's a very similar sort of story. Uh, this is Acts nine thirty six to forty three. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, 
which translated means Dorcas. So one of those is a Greek name, the other is a Hebrew name. It means exactly the same thing, and the word translates as gazelle. It's not particularly interesting or important that it translates as gazelle, but that's what it says. So she was full of good works and acts of charity. So she was a good woman and obviously a leader in the in the nascent Christian community here at Joppa, which is over near Tel Aviv. It's just, it's basically today, it would be a suburb of Tel Aviv. It's on the Mediterranean. And so there's, um, it's a, it's, it was a great port city at various times. It was a disputed city over most of its existence. Mostly the Phoenicians would have been the ones who controlled this area. It was in the territory that was allotted to the tribe of Dan. And so it's sort of, it's about 35, 40 miles from Jerusalem. So it's quite a distance, and it had been disputed. Dan only had it for a while, and then it seems the Phoenicians got it, and the Romans got it, and this one got it, and Alexander the Great had it, and it just transferred back and forth because it was an important port on the Mediterranean. So that that's the reason that that this was it was an important trading point. But it was sort of at the fringe because it's well, it's, it has to be the fringe because there's nothing out into the sea. So it it had to it was on the fringe and it and it was distant ish from Jerusalem. So uh, th- this woman Tabitha lived there who was full of good works and acts of charity, and so she was an important person in the um, in the community there at Joppa. We, we assume that she is a, a Jewish convert because during this period of time in the church, most of the people were Jewish converts to Christianity, They're the ones who had believed that Jesus was Messiah, because we don't see a movement out towards the Gentiles until later when Paul comes along. Well, actually, it gets kind of started with um, Peter here in the next chapter. So the, these are primarily Jewish converts, people who've come to accept Jesus as Messiah, and so they're Christians in that sense. So anyway, in those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So they had prepared her body. They had, She had died. They had prepared her body, and they laid her in an upper room to be apart from. And, and sort of upper rooms were typically places where people would go to worship. Um, and so they put her in this upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Now, Lydda is about 12 miles away. So they, these, the, the disciples there in Joppa sent two men to go to Peter and said, come to us without delay. And you're going to see men coming to Peter in chapter 10 as well, sent from Cornelius, the Roman centurion, because of each having a dream, and then men come to get him. And so here they, they urge him, please come to us without delay. Now, why would be the question. Did, did they expect him to raise uh, Tabitha from the dead, or was there something else going on? Was there some other reason they wanted him to come at this time? But Peter arose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made when she was with them. So what we see is is, is that the, these women are, are encouraging Peter. And remember, with the, the Roman centurion whose child um, Jesus heals, that remember the deal there is that, that they said he's worthy for you to do this for him because he, he built our synagogue for us up here where we are. So here you see that same kind of thing. It is sort of a combination-looking deal of, of Lazarus, where the people are all there grieving over Lazarus weeping and all that, and then uh, and then also this this showing the tunics and other garments that she had made, in order 
to say she's worthy. But Peter put them all outside, which is exactly what Jesus did when he healed the synagogue ruler's daughter. He put everybody outside except for the disciples who, who were with him at that time. And then he knelt down, Peter did, and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And remember, Jesus says to that young girl, Talitha kum, which is, means little girl, arise. So that's exactly what Peter has done here. He has, he has done what he had seen Jesus do. And so he knelt and prayed and then turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And it's interesting, that whole grammar thing where he turned to the body. You know, that was one of the things that, that at the funeral, that when we got to the grave site, um, one of the things that I mentioned there was, now I want you to understand something, this is just the body. And, and so it's, his soul has already gone, and it's just the body, the shell that was left behind. And, but just the body is not something you should ever say prior to death. After death, it's just a body. Prior to death, the body has a lot of importance. And also the bodily resurrection of Jesus mattered. The incarnation of Jesus mattered. And that tells me that the body matters because Jesus lived in a body. And so it's important that we, we not minimize the importance of the body. But here, this, what we're told is that Peter turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner, in that place. And so we, we see this dramatic um, recapitulation in so many ways of Jesus' own ministry. But there's a part of me that reads this and, and, and says, how did she react to this? Was she, was she pleased to have been brought back from the dead? Because she, I wouldn't be. <laughs> I've already finished my race, and now to be restored back to this life would, would, would feel wrong at some level. It would feel like, oh, I, I didn't really want that. I had finished this race, and I was now in this other uh, realm where I was with the Lord. And so, But we don't see that here, but we do see Peter doing this work of raising this woman from the dead and restoring her to the community in this place. And, and signs always have a place. Right, so even the sign of maybe uh, raising somebody from the dead uh, is gonna is gonna be a powerful sign in the place where you are, and then you know that because it's a port city, then also that word is gonna spread. It's gonna spread everywhere because people are gonna come to this place, they're gonna hear it, and they're gonna go out from there, and so the gospel would continue to spread without the apostles themselves getting involved necessarily, because the, the sailors and others who would come into this port, all the trading people there, the, the, the word, the buzz would have been on the street, and, and people would have heard what Peter had done. And, and so Peter was was good to be obedient to the call. And then when he knelt and prayed, I feel certain that what he heard from the Lord was, this is what you should do. And so he does exactly what he had seen his master Jesus do in bringing her back from the dead. It the, the the signs, in my mind, at least, signs are important. The, the signs of, of God's activity in the world today are a reminder that he, he's not a great clockmaker who, who made the clock, wound it up, and now watches us from a distance. No, through the power of the Holy Spirit, then, then he, is, he is here, present at this time. And, and I know from the uh, things that we did in Pauly's Island, and when we saw so many healings and other things happen in that place, those signs brought people. 
They brought people to come and see. They brought people who heard about these things that had happened. The last week that I was at, at the church there, I was not working on that Wednesday. We had a Wednesday healing service, and I wasn't working. So what had happened was I, Suzanne and I went to lunch and came back, and when we did, we saw there was an ambulance at the healing service. Well, frequently when, when we prayed for people in the healing service, people would go down in the power of the Holy Spirit. They would go down and rest in the Spirit. And so I happened to know somebody who got hurt by that happening one time. And so I asked the guy who was the priest who was in charge that day, and I asked him, you know, did, did you hurt somebody during the healing service? And he said, no. Why? I said, there was an ambulance there. He said, oh, that's because a surgeon at Grand Strand Hospital in Myrtle Beach told their patient, there's nothing more that I can do for you. But I've heard about this church in Pauly's Island, and if you're willing, we'll go down there and pray and, and get you prayed for by those people. And, and that was a powerful testimony of God having done signs and wonders and, and that renown spreading to other places. And so a surgeon brought his terminally ill patient to be prayed over. It, it was a powerful, powerful thing, but, but people came from all over to that healing service because they knew that, that God was at work and miraculous things happened. And so we, we need signs today as well. We, don't, we need to see that. We need to pray for people's healing. We need to expect miracles because we have that kind of God. In the gospel today, it's John 10, verses 22 to 30, it's at the Feast of the Dedication, which is Hanukkah. Uh, it took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, the Feast of Dedication is not a great pilgrim feast. It's a late feast. It's, it was uh, um, set up in the intertestamental period. You won't read about Hanukkah anywhere in um, in the Bible proper. It's in the book of the Maccabees is where it comes in. And so then, it, then what God did in providing a supply of oil while the temple was being restored and purified from the desecration done by Antiochus Epiphanes, by, who um, slaughtered a pig in the temple. So it, during that time, they didn't have enough oil to last for eight days. They, they, were, they were making the oil, but the provision never gave out. And so that's what the Feast of Lights is about. The oil was for the lamps in the temple, and God provided for that. And it was winter, which is when Hanukkah happens, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. Uh, in other words, I mean, what he's, what he's saying there is, is that I've already told you this. You don't believe it. The problem isn't isn't me. It's not that I haven't told you. It's that you don't believe. Um, you don't have to be in suspense. I've already told you everything you need to know, and here's the way he says to do it. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. That's a powerful statement, that, that you're not among my sheep. It says that you aren't even um, saved. And you're not going to be saved because you're not in the number of my sheep. And we know, but Psalm 23 is the psalm appointed for today. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It, it's, he is the great good shepherd. And Jesus here is saying this very plainly, as he does in, in, this, in the rest of this chapter as well. He's talking about being a shepherd. And he is the good shepherd. 
And so here he, he tells these people, these, these who have come and asked him this, that you're not among my sheep. And, and so when we look at this, we can, people will say to you things like, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't believe Jesus is, you know, the, the way, the truth, and the life. I don't believe he's the only way, but I believe he's a great moral teacher. Well, that's not what Jesus points to. That's not what anybody pointed to at the time. Jesus points here to the works that he does in the Father's name, that that's the way you know. And, and how we got away from that and, and became only sort of a, a word-based people, I'm not sure. Because those signs are important. Those signs are very important. People can hear the gospel and hear the gospel and hear the gospel, but unless they see, sometimes they won't believe at all. And so Jesus points to the works that he's done as the way that he has told them plainly that those things point to exactly who he is. He's doing the works that he said he was going to do in, in the beginning of Luke's gospel, when he not the beginning, but, but in Luke's gospel, when he goes into the uh, synagogue and reads from Isaiah 60 and says, these are the things that are going to happen now. Restoration of sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, releasing prisoners, captives, uh, all the things that, that point in that direction, Jesus, it, that say that t- this is the year of the Lord's favor, Jesus has done those things. And he's pointing to the witness of those things. It's not his teaching that was swaying people. It was the things he was doing that was swaying people to, to believe in him as the Messiah, because nobody had ever done the works that he did. In fact, in, in John's gospel, in the previous chapter, what we see is Jesus giving sight to a man blind from birth who we know is over 40 years old. And the man says, nobody's ever heard of this before. So the things that Jesus did pointed to him. His words do as well, but those two work in combination with one another. They're, they're not looking for the great teacher. That, that will come and do this. He's saying the signs that I'm doing, the works that I do are pointing to me. And, and so he's drawing attention specifically to those things and saying, you want to measure who I am, just recount the things that I've done. And that's all John's whole gospel is, is sometimes called the signs gospel because John fixes himself firmly on the signs Jesus does. And he doesn't say that they're miracles. He calls them signs. The Greek word is simeon. There's a different word for miracles. So that word tells us, John says, a sign is something that points to a greater reality. You look at the sign so that you'll know something else. You know, you, you, you can't stop at a freeway sign and say, oh, there's a McDonald's right here. No, that sign tells you where the McDonald's is, <laughs> that there is a McDonald's that's a reality in, in the next exit. So you know how to interpret that sign. And Jesus says, that's the way it is here. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, he's just talked about being the sheepfold and being the, the door of the sheep and the shepherd. So that, that image is, is this. So the, the sheepfold is a place where, where there was places of danger, the, the shepherds would gather together inside an enclosure that they had made in the evening. And they would shelter the sheep in there, and they would take turns keeping the watch through the night to make sure nothing came over the walls of the sheepfold. And in the morning, when they went out, they would go one at a time. So each shepherd would go out, and he would call his sheep. And his sheep recognized and responded only to his voice because they trusted him. They had formed that bond and that trust over time. 
that they could trust him. Now, the other shepherds could have been equally worthy of that trust, but they, they, the sheep themselves, didn't know that. They did, however, know that this one was trustworthy. And so his sheep would come out, and the other sheep would stay until they heard their shepherd's voices, and then they would come out. And they would follow their shepherds. And that's what Jesus is saying. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's a powerful statement that he's making here, and they can't miss what he's saying. And in case they did, he finishes with this, I and the Father are one. Well, that is um, a very controversial statement for him to make. How can you and somebody else be one? Right? Because it's, if it's you, it means Suzanne or two. But what does it say? It, they become one flesh. And so here, he's, Jesus is laying claim to that unity with the Father. It's one and one equals one. And we also know now that with the Holy Spirit, one and one and one equals one. But in the Jewish mind, that this is tantamount to blasphemy. Because in Deuteronomy 6, which is the great Shema, the great declaration of monotheism that, that uh, Judaism made, is, is that the Father is one. God is one. He is unitary. And, and then comes the, the great debate in the church that consumed the first, well, 400 years plus, all the way to today, it's in some places, of, of how to make one and one and one equal one. What does that mean, that one and one and one equals one? And so what they came up with at the Council of Nicaea in the, in the 5th century was that it was um, one, and one, one and one and one equals one is possible through... The, this one word, homoousius, which means of the same substance, and we translate it of the, the same being of the Father. So whatever the Father is, so is the Son. Whatever the Son is, so is the Father. And so there's this unity of those two that's indissoluble. So we know Jesus in the flesh, but, but there's a difference and a distinction in persons, but not in unity. So when Jesus makes the claim that I and the Father are one, he, he is changing the mathematics. Or is he? And that's the issue. And that's the issue still today within Judaism, with Jesus' claim and Christianity's claim, is they don't accept anything like what we talk about when we talk about the Trinity. They, they, they say there's no such thing. You're talking about three gods. We're not talking about three gods. It, it, but it's, it requires the Holy Spirit to know these things. And it requires us to receive the witness of the Holy Spirit to know these things. So if you believe all this, be thankful that God gave you the Holy Spirit to dwell in you in order that you might know and you might believe. And it's important that we hang fast to that truth because it, it's the truth Jesus said. So, so what he's saying here is, is that, that he is the great shepherd, but not of everybody. Not even all Judaism is what he's saying here. That, that you've chosen on the front end to, to disbelieve. In other words, at some levels, you, you guys are like Pharaoh was vis-a-vis uh, -vis Moses, where you've already hardened your heart that you won't believe because of what you already believe. You're not willing to expand and, and to, to, to know 
something different. And, and there's something good about that. There's something good about holding fast to truth. But that's why that Jesus' witness had to be more than just words. Why he had to do things to authenticate himself as the unique Son of God. Because if you just come and teach these things and make these claims, then, then those have to be evaluated very differently from when they're combined with the works that he did. And it's important that we see that distinction and that, and that we celebrate those miracles, but we also mesh those things with the truths that he spoke, and that we not lose either of those things. So he's giving them a witness to who he is, and they're rejecting the witness. That's the problem. That's the problem. They've already determined that he's not the one. And it's the same is true in rabbinic Judaism today. They've already determined it. And so I listen to a lot of rabbinic teaching on the Old Testament. But at the same time, I'm aware and greatly grieved that sometimes they can come so close. When I'm listening to things, it's like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. But you've already ruled it out on the front end. And so your hearts are hardened against that truth, even though you're still seeking truth. And God's continuing to give revelation about the Old Testament scriptures to them, because those point to Jesus. And so it's the argument that Paul makes in Romans 8 that nobody can say they're without a witness. As long as he's continuing to reveal things and continuing to, to urge them to see and examine the claims of Jesus, then, and they're continuing to reject him, well, that's on them. It's not God being mean. So in the final reading today is from Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17. Before this, we've, we've seen in the, in the first part of Revelation 7, we, we meet the 144,000 who are the Jews who are converted. And now, he says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number. So it's not 144,000. It's, it's a great multitude no one can number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. So here they are in these white robes with palm branches. Now that should remind you of Palm Sunday. They are claiming the one who is on the throne. And we know that ultimately every knee will bow. These are voluntarily and willingly worshiping the one on the throne as king. They have come to believe, and they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That You see, I and the Father are one. And, and remember, I've said this a million times, that, that Revelation 5 could be the end of all existence, because what happens is once the Lamb takes the scroll from the one seated on the throne, heaven begins to worship the Lamb with the same language that it had previously had only for the one seated on the throne. And so here we see the, these saints standing before the throne. These, we're going we're gonna to hear more about them in a minute, but we see these saints standing before the throne, and they're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They are the ones who came to believe in Jesus. Their testimony bears witness to the Lamb, that salvation belongs to both of them, but there's a unity in that. And then all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So they're, they're joining in the praise of this great multitude in white robes before the throne. And then one of the elders addressed me, 
It's unusual that when the elders looks at, at John and says, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know, which is a confession he doesn't know. John is confused by who these people are. And part of this has to do with time, right? So John's entered into the timelessness of heaven. These are future events that he's seeing. These are, these are people who are not even alive probably at the time of John, but possibly some of them might be. But, but he doesn't know who they are, where they've come from, because they're from all over the world. And John couldn't possibly imagine who those people would be. And so th- this tribulation that we're getting ready to hear about, by the way, is this, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So is it talking about what Jesus talked about that would happen before the collapse of the temple, or the, the destruction of the temple, or, or is it some other time? And I believe that it's another time. And the reason I say that is because they're, they're from every tribe and language and people and nation. Well, at the time that the temple was destroyed in AD 70, there wouldn't have been that. You wouldn't have had those witnesses from all over. So this has got to be a different kind of tribulation than the persecution that broke out at the time of the destruction of the temple. It's got to be something different. So this is a later time, but, but all of time is collapsed in, in heaven, in the presence of God. The, everything is laid out all there. And so he's seeing future things in the present tense. So these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So they're the ones who, during the period of the Great Tribulation, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and and then washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And that's such a great um, picture right there. Is there any blood that you can think of that you could use to dye a robe and make it white? But, But it talks about the purity. And so being washed with the blood of the Lamb makes things white. It makes things pure. Because his righteousness is what does that. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so these are standing before the throne, giving praise and saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he and the Father are one, and that salvation is found in God through Jesus. And so they, they, they make their um, praise to both. And so, so he's, John is told, these are the ones who, coming out of the Great Tribulation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, so they endured and suffered the persecution. They persevered to the end in their faith and their belief in Jesus Christ. And now what we're going to hear is, is, is that how he continues to shepherd them even now until the, the coming again. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And that is a reference, obviously, to Psalm 91, which begins with, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. And so that's exactly what what we're seeing. We're seeing the fulfillment of this Psalm 91 goes on to say, because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to fall befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you in all ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You'll tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You'll trample underfoot. So we see this great promise 
of what it means to, to be sheltered in the presence of God. And, and then now the elder goes on to say, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we see here, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And now the elder says, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So they're protected from all harm. They'll neither hunger nor thirst anymore. The sun won't strike them by day, nor any scorching heat. And, And then he says, for, because the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. So they're sheltered in the presence of the Almighty, but the Lamb is their shelter, is their shepherd, who will guide them to springs of living water, which is what Jesus promised the Samaritan woman, what he promised others as well, this living water that comes from within us. And so right now, Jesus is your shepherd. He is intended to be your great good shepherd, intends to lead you safely through all the storms of life, through all the things that are mentioned in Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's safety and food. He leads me beside still waters so I can drink without having to worry about the noise and that noise covering other noises and that moving water. He, He restores my soul. Can you think of anything you could want right this minute, more than the restoration of your soul to that peaceful, beatific vision of Psalm 23. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So we're following him for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the promise of God, to be all that for us. And that's exactly what we see here, that that these who turned to Jesus and believed in him have the eternal blessedness of him as their shepherd throughout all eternity. That's the promise for you. That's the promise for me. It's the thing we cling to. It's the way we're intended to live, and it's the only way to safely get through this life and into the next life. So let's recommit ourselves today to following where he leads.